Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So this is a show about Jane Austen, and let me just begin by saying that yesterday, by way of preparation, I made a point of watching the new adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion. This is uh, released on a Netflix, Dakota Johnson plays Anne, and it's come in for a certain amount of derision, and and worse, (laughs) whatever's worse than derision. And so I sat there kind of embarrassed by how much I was loving it. I was having a very stressful day. I have a very stressful life these days. It was just something wonderfully relaxing about Dakota Johnson and kind of doing her fourth wall, flea bag style mugging. Uh, and eventually the other person in the room, who shall remain nameless, said rather stiffly, well, you're not a Jane Austen person. And I guess that's sort of true, except I hate the idea that there's such a thing as a Jane Austen person, because then one thing that's really clear after two centuries is that all kinds of people are Jane Austen. There's some, there's some NFL player who reads Jane Austen. I just guarantee you that. Uh, and I mentioned before we went on the air just now or before the news, B.B. You know, King's a Jane Austen fan, you know. Um, so I hate the idea that there's a Jane Austen person, and but I there probably is. Anyway, uh, it's not for me to say we have great guests today. Uh, right now, we are going to talk to Devani Lozer, uh, a professor of English at Arizona State University and the author of books, including The Making of Jane Austen. Her new book, out in October, order it now, uh, is sister novelists Jane and Anna Maria Porter in the Age of Austen. She goes by Stone Cold Jane Austen uh, in her uh, sidelight as a roller derby competitor, which is also very on brand. Roller derby was very big in Regency England. Walter Scott and Percy Shelley were both uh, both competed in roller derby, but women were not allowed to. It's just another another thing that kind of comes up that way. So, um, first of all, Devaney Lozer, welcome to our show. Great to be here, Colin. Love that intro and your sense of humor. Uh, well, I may I may wear thin on you pretty quickly, but you know it's a good beginning anyway. Uh, and so, I, you know, maybe just start a, a, a little bit. I don't know. Maybe imagine somebody walking out of the. Amazonian jungle or emerging from a coma or something. Somebody had really kind of no point of reference for Jane Austen, but hearing about the books, getting kind of interested. What would you say to that person? How would you introduce that person to the idea of Jane Austen? I think I'd start by telling them that Jane Austen is the greatest novelist writing in the English language. And some say the greatest English language author, period. I think she's giving Shakespeare a run for her money these days. But she was born at a pretty tumultuous time, 1775, the late 18th century, during a moment of revolutions. And, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the American and French revolutions, what some people call the longest revolution, the revolution for women's rights. So all of these things inform her novels, and I think many of them continue to make her readable, rereadable, and topical today. Yeah, there's a really kind of weird way in which her her novels are very much a, much a product of the moment they're set in. 
but they're also they're also not right. They also they they spread very nicely. They travel well across time in in most ways. I was just reading about how uh, Louis Menon and Stephen Greenblatt in this course that they teach uh, at Harvard uh, have their students read wedding announcements in the New York Times. Uh, and wedding announcements in the Daily News. The Daily News wedding announcements are, you know, sort of one or two class rungs down. People have gone to community colleges and the boroughs and stuff. But when these Harvard students are reading the wedding announcements in the New York Times, they're going, oh, yeah, no, I, my father knows somebody who works at that law firm. Or, you know, I mean, they're very familiar with the kind of class structure that is mostly represented in those wedding announcements. A sign maybe that one reason that Austin travels well is we haven't changed as much as we think we have. That's a great assignment. Uh, But absolutely, I think there are people who describe her themes as universal. And I'm not sure that's 100% true, but I would say the ways that they deal with courtship, romance, money, and especially family conflict are obviously things that resonate from most periods and cultures. Yeah, the money thing is really interesting. You know, I mean, particularly in the sense that, okay, so if you say, I mean, Austin kind of tells you, uh, tells her, particularly her contemporary readers, how much money everybody has. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really mean quite as much to us. We don't know what 10,000 pounds meant in 1815 or whatever, but but people did. People then then did. And it's it's maybe you can say a little bit more about why that's so important. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously 10,000 pounds, which is Mr. Darcy's Darcy's yearly, you know, annual income, that's a a lot of money. And we're supposed to, they would have understood and we're supposed to understand that's a lot of money. But I think the ways that we now ask people, what do you do? And don't see that as a prime question. Maybe it sometimes is, but we don't, I think, culturally see it that way now. To talk about a rich person and say, how much is he or she worth? was in the same way, I think, part of the culturally acceptable kinds of conversations one could have about a wealthy person. And, you know, so I I think that obviously women in particular from middling classes and above, since what was most, uh, their, their most likely future was to marry or to rely on brothers and fathers to support them, what a man made and his marriageability based on that economic worth was really crucial. And and is it? I think it would be fair to say that also, economics were probably less flexible than they are now. I mean, in reality, the the American idea that it's a place where someone can change their economic status, uh, that they they can outgrow the class they were born into, is somewhat overrated. Uh, but I mean, it it is different from what you would have seen. I assume in Regency. England, whatever amount of money you started out with, uh, you were unlikely to change social classes anyway as a result of making more money. Truly, and well put. I mean, I think some of Austen's novels deal with this kind of attempt to move up and beyond one's born social class persuasion, especially, which I know we're going to be talking about this hour. Uh, But she was well aware of the kinds of intractability of status and economic level. Uh, but also dealt with characters who did do some movement in one direction and another, as certainly happened then, too. I'm going to go back to your first statement, uh, best uh, novelist writing in the English language, um, and, and maybe more than that. So, you know, in a way, that means it's about the words. And I was struck by a quote I found by Virginia Woolf, who said about Austin, of all great writers, she's the most difficult to catch in the act of greatness. I'm not sure I entirely understand what is meant by that, but I'm willing to bet that you do. 
I, that's such a great quote. You know, the way I read it, and I think you could read it many ways, but the way I read it is that it's difficult to break down the the kinds of ways that she makes the magic work. Uh, that it's on the level of the word and phrase, it's on the level of the sentence, it's on the level of the plot. It all seems to work together so seamlessly and look so effortless. And I think that's what Wolf was trying to get at, that you know she's great, but it's hard to put your finger on how all of these parts add up to that greatness. Right. I mean, she's not James Joyce. I mean, James Joyce is kind of letting you know what he's doing, you know, in a very, very flashy way. She's kind of doing the other thing, which is kind of bewitching you without entirely revealing the nature of her spells. And I think there are people who believe she must have been drawing on real people because her characters seem so real, even still, which is kind of amazing. Well, she does somewhat, right? I mean, and some of the people are based uh, on her on her family, right? I mean, to a certain degree, the 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 romantic lead in persuasion is kind of one of her brothers. So I, I think there is evidence that she certainly paid close attention to the people around her and probably drew on her circle of acquaintance and her family members. But I'm not sure I see direct one to one correspondence between. Austin's um, Captain Wentworth and her naval brothers. Certainly her naval brothers were people she gained knowledge from about the, the British, you know, the Royal Navy. And, uh, you know, these were things that she obviously was a careful student of. But I'm not sure I see direct inspirations necessarily at work. Uh, you know, and, and she, I think, would have denied it in any case. So it depends whether you want to take her word for it or not. Yeah. And I don't I mean, I don't know anything close to what you know about this, obviously. But one of the things that has always jumped out uh, at me from persuasion is the idea of the sea captain's wife going to sea with the captain. You know, to me, it's one of the big sort of moments uh, and and sort of predictive of, of where things wind up going. And that I think is true of is it George? I can't. I don't. I can't tell the brothers apart. But didn't one of the brothers have a wife who did sail around with him? It was Charles Austin. And there's a, a fine book by Sheila Johnson Kindred about that wife called Jane Austen's Transatlantic Sister. So for anybody who wants to learn more about what a real life uh, naval wife her experiences look like, that biography, which came out just a couple years ago, I think does a good job of describing the dailiness of that world. Um. I think the other thing that maybe young people who are, you know, uninitiated, getting initiated to Austin might not quite understand, although it's certainly there in some of the movies, is that she's funny. Um, Fran Leibowitz uh, was talking about her in this Morgan Library project that they did. She said, if you're a truth teller, you better be funny or they'll kill you. Um, And and I, I think that's kind of an interesting point about Austin is that she finds things funny, things that are also an outrage, an imposition, an unfairness, uh, um, uh, grandstanding, all of those things strike her as funny, probably at the same time as making her angry. I love that Morgan video series, by the way. And there's another fabulous one that your listeners should watch uh, with Cornell West. Yes. About Jane Austen. These are wonderful. The way he goes on about Emma is really interesting, actually. Uh, Wonderful. But yeah, talk a little bit about Austen and humor. Yeah, Austin is obviously very funny. I mean, I, I I guess it's it's not obvious to first-time readers necessarily because I think the language has become a little bit of a challenge for a lot of first-time readers. It can strike, I think, early 21st century readers, or at least strikes my students often, is a little bit stiff. And you have to help break it down for them, the kinds of indirection and irony and satiric work going on in a lot of these sentences, from the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice, the most famous sent- first sentence, I think, of any novel, forward. 
Uh, you don't always catch it at first, but that's also what's amazing about Austin. You can read her for the romance and the love and the sentimentality and get a lot out of it. You can read her for the comedy and you can read her for the social criticism and just all of these possible ways to read and reread these texts and see something new each time. But I am definitely someone who loves the comedy and satire parts and the social criticism parts of these books. So one of the things you've written about is the way that Austin both reinforces tradition and challenges it. Um, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, l- listening to Cornell West in the the, uh, the video that you referenced and knowing also that B.B. King purports to be a Jane Austen fan, uh, I'm thinking, wow, if you're familiar with systemic unfairness uh, <laughs> in your own life, um, that's one of the ways that you're going to be able to read Austen. I- I'm guessing that that's you know, one of the lessons that does travel well across time. But in another sense, you know, second wave feminists have kind of traditionally or in some cases had problems with Austin because she's heteronormative, because the goal always seems to be marriage. That's how you win the the pot uh, in the game. Uh, and they want more than that. So I don't know. I don't know what question I'm asking you, but I know you'll have a great answer. Well, there are a lot, a lot of great questions in there and threads in there. I do think that Austin is describing a world that's unfair. And she's doing it from the perspective of a middle-class woman, often, and a white woman. So I think she does better to make sense of the world from that perspective, perhaps, than from other perspectives of her time or our own. But the stories and the ways that they unpack those unfairnesses, uh, those injustices, are subtle and not heavy-handed. These are not novels that tell you, and here's what you should come away thinking. They open up questions and open up problems, and they don't even end up punishing a lot of their worst characters all that much. <laughs> you know, so I, I think it, it allows us to imagine a world to see things that aren't fair, especially, I think, again, to uh, in terms of gender and class, and to try to question what an individual does in these systems. And, you know, the, the way that I try to tell it to my students is, the novels can be a kind of guide to how to live a meaningful life in a world that's deeply unfair. But they're very much written for individuals to figure that out rather than as a kind of social blueprint for how to change society. And I think a point that you've made that I think is a good one, too, is, OK, so let's say you are, let's say one is bothered by the way these these novels, when they finally bear fruit at the end, the fruit is marriage. So read other parts more intensely. Um, you know, I mean, she's not going to write Annie Hall, you know. She just isn't the time to write about a relationship that ultimately doesn't work out all that well. Um, but there's so much going on in the rest of the book that it might be a mistake to overfocus on the quote-unquote happy ending that is marriage. Unquestionably, and I'm glad you brought us back around to that. And I think that's a kind of stereotyping of what second wave feminist literary criticism was doing. It wasn't all doing that with Austin, but to the extent that it it was over-focusing on the endings in marriage, I mean, these are comedies. Of course they end in marriage. It's a generic expectation for you know that she followed and kept to that convention. But if you read the actual marriages that she describes, they are quite cynically. Uh, you know, outlined the the Bennets, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. What a cynical view, and not a very uh, happy sense of what marriage looks like after the wedding day. Right, and so much of it does appear at times to be this kind of board game that you have to kind of figure out and move your pieces onto the right squares and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, she she, <laughs> she does seem to have a somewhat 
cynical view of an awful lot of that and kind of understand it for what it is. I guess I want to get Deborah into this uh, pretty soon, so we're going to take a break in just a second. But, you know, I guess a point you were making earlier is worth reemphasizing, which is you can read these books a lot of ways. And I think a lot of them, a lot of people read them as courtship, romance, novels, whatever that's called. You know, that's the the kind of sense of here's a, a lovely story about someone overcoming adversity and, you know, ultimately getting to a, a place of happiness and some funny stuff, some interesting stuff happens along the way. But it's just kind of a, a pleasurable story. And, and I would assume you would say there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that there's no necessity of limiting one's self to that kind of a reading. And I've actually been talking about this with Deborah for, you know, about a decade now. The <laughs> idea that these novels are kind of Rorschach test. You can you can go to them and pick and choose and find what you want there. So I do think there are more expansive and more limited ways to read them. Absolutely. But you're, the way that you put it, that you can make a choice and that it should be okay to make the choice to emphasize certain parts and not others. Uh, that's what critics do all the time too. So I think it's fine that readers should should be encouraged or allowed to have that approach to these novels too. Yeah, I think Leibowitz in that interview talks about the difference between, between a mirror and a door. She's, I think, somewhat contemptuous in a friend Leibowitz way of uh, people who would use Austen or any novel as a mirror uh, to tell them more about themselves and their own lives. But I think that's actually a totally legitimate thing to do. Her argument is, no, use it as a door. Go find out what other lives are like. Yeah, and I think ideally, and this is maybe where my perspective as an educator comes in, things that start out at mirrors can turn into doors. So, you know, that's what you hope you're doing, right? By reading and investigating questions culturally and historically. Absolutely. I mean, if you see something of your own life in a Jane Austen novel, and if it's uh, so let's say unflatteringly portrayed, you could say, "Oh well, I'm I'm living the wrong set of values here. I should open a door. I should go someplace else." And I would guess you probably run into people who say, "Yeah, Jane Austen changed my life." I, all the time, and I'm certainly one of them. <laughs> all right. Well, you married a Jane Austen scholar. I mean, you got the you got the ruler derby name. You got the whole thing. <laughs> you know, you've gone in a hundred percent. I think so. All Jane all the time. All Jane all the time. All right. Let's grab a break here, uh, and we're going to come back. Uh, she is going to stay with us, but there's going to be another person here, a person I haven't seen in quite a few decades, and I'm excited to talk to. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. We're going to be talking about Jane Austen the whole way, and Devaney Lozer, who's been with us, is going to be with us the whole way, professor of English at Arizona State University, author of books including The Making of Jane Austen. Her new book out in October is Sister Novelists, Jane and Anna Mariah Porter in the Age of Austen. Uh, and joining us now is Deborah Yaffe, uh, author of Among the Janeites, A Journey Through the World of Jane Austen Fandom. Uh, Deborah Yaffe and I, uh, I don't really know when it was, Deborah. I'm going to guess that it was before the Emma Thompson, Hugh Grant, Sense and Sensibility oh. adaptation. I'm just locating our- long our before. Long before. I have no idea. Was it, it in the was 80s? 19, 1986. Oh. <laughs> All right. So that's long before. OK. So Debbie Yaffe was an intern of the Hartford Current and a very, very good intern. We know we knew that she would she would uh, achieve greatness. And she has. Uh, and it's great to hear your voice again. Send me an email and I'll, I'll catch you up on one or two things. Some of your <laughs> former co-workers. Um, so first of all, maybe maybe explain the term Janeite. So the, the word Janeite was coined at the very end of the 19th century by a Victorian literary critic called George Sainsbury, who wrote an introduction to a famous edition of Pride and Prejudice. It's famous because the cover has this elaborate peacock design on it. It's very beautiful. I have it on my cell phone case, just as an extra little detail there. Um, so Sainsbury coined this term, and then um, maybe 20 or so years later, Rudyard Kipling wrote a short story called the Janeites, which is about a group of people in the trenches in World War I who discover a shared affinity for Jane Austen, and she becomes a kind of talisman and code word and secret society um, that helps them survive the horrors of the trenches. So um, the term has, the term means essentially, you know, rabid Jane Austen fan, um, from time to time used pejoratively in the sense of, you know, people who are really crazy. Um, but I would say these days, um, Janeites tend to embrace that term as a as a beloved moniker. And I'm certainly in that category. I proudly call myself a Janeite. Yeah. Although, Devaney, I mean, there is something a little cultish sounding. Just the word Janeites <laughs> feels like something, you know, where you can't go to the bathroom or something. And, you know, there's like lots of rules. That's not at all what it means. How comfortable are you with a term like that? I use it comfortably. To me, it means fan and enthusiast. And I hope that critics can also occasionally and perhaps even regularly be fans and enthusiasts. So I, I very much embrace this label and don't enjoy all parts of the fandom. Anytime you're part of a, a cult, as you call it, or a, <laughs> a group or a club, there are disagreements and some of them are personally felt and difficult. But to me, that's also something that is a, a big tent approach to what it means to read and care about books. So I want to ask both of you, but let's start with you, Deborah. I know this is a hard thing to measure, but like what... How close to peak Jane Austen are we right now? I mean, I was making a joke about 1995. The truth is, 1995, right around then, there was just sort of a ton of activity uh, in terms of adaptations and stuff like that. Uh, but there's like so much more that can be done now. There's like just a lot of hashtag Regency stuff. There's Jane Austen TikTok. I'm not 100% sure I know what that is, but I, I can imagine. Uh, so, Deborah, I don't know. As you look at the Janeites and, and what they're up to these days, are, are we... Have we gone up exponentially in terms of engagement? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. You're right that the 19 sort of 1995 to 97 period um, was a pretty important one for the fandom. The um, 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which is the one where Colin Firth emerges from the lake in a wet shirt as Mr. Darcy, um, that one 
was very important to galvanizing a lot of new fans. Um, membership in the Jane Austen, visits to the Jane Austen's House Museum in England went way up that year. Membership in the Jane Austen Society of North America went way up. Um, and there were something like five Jane Austen adaptations that came out in this short period of time. And that was also right around the time that the internet was taking off. So it provided a way for all of these new fans to find each other and kind of stoke their enthusiasms by talking a lot. So that was a sort of peak Jane Austen moment. Um, whether we're in one now, um, I mean, I think that nowadays we've got many, we've got social media, so we have the opportunity to have many more fragmented, smaller communities, even than we did when we had when we were not looking at um, social media, but just looking at the internet as a whole. And so maybe that provides the opportunity for people to find exactly the kind of Jane Austen fan that they want to talk to. Um, and whether that makes for more or less engagement, um, I don't know. That's a question of politics is making us ask these days, too. So maybe it applies to Jane Austen fandom as well. Yeah. And Deborah, I'm also thinking about so-called user-generated content. I mean, one of the other things oh, yeah. that the digisphere really made popular, not that you couldn't have written your own you know, lesbian Jane Austen fan fiction or something, you know, in 1980, of course you could have. But there, there's a way in which this is such a, a huge mound of potting soil for like all kinds of people wanting to put their own stamp on things. And I would assume that Jane Austen is a very, very inviting place to do that kind of gardening. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there are huge, huge numbers of Jane Austen fan fan fiction works. Um, many of them about Pride and Prejudice. That's certainly by far the most the most fertile soil to continue your metaphor. Um, but because the the internet now allows for self publishing and allows for fan fiction communities where people can put their thing put their work out there and share it with a, an appreciative audience, that certainly makes it easier than back when you had to actually you know pay a vanity press to publish something if you couldn't get it commercial publisher interested in you. But there certainly was Jane Austen fan fiction before the internet. Um, I think that the movies and the way that they brought a particular vision of Jane Austen to a larger audience definitely encouraged a lot more fan fiction writers. Um, the movies tend to emphasize the romance elements of the books. And so a lot of the fan fiction that you see nowadays is are basically romance novels or romance stories that um, jump off from Jane Austen's characters or from things that are in the movies. And Devaney, another thing that uh, is not unique to our age, but I think is amplified by our age, is participation in various various cons like Comic Con. I don't know if there's a specific Jane Austen con that you can go to, but that I, the idea of the kind of cosplay um, aspect of it, dressing up in Regency. There's even a movie called Austin Land, which is about this Jane Austen fantasy camp where you go and you kind of live as a Jane Austen character and find romance with some paid actor. Um, but I'm wondering about that, too. There's a, I feel like we're living in an, uh, an era of reenactors and, and sort of physical living outs, outers of their dreams. Yes, and there is a virtual Jane Con uh, that's relatively new, pandemic new. And there's a Jane Con called that exactly in Australia. Uh, but most Jane Austen societies date to the mid 20th or the late 20th century and didn't use con yet. <laughs> so <laughs> there have been these author societies for a very long time, and they've involved some level of cosplay for a very long time. I talked a little bit in the making of Jane Austen about the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century using cosplay as part of its work. So absolutely, this, this idea that people who like a certain thing in common get together and play dress up or use costuming. I think there are people who, who prefer to call it dress 
than costume uh, in, in the world that Deborah and I inhabit, this Jainite world. Uh, but absolutely, there's a sense that you are a kind of reenactor or at least explorer of what these characters might mean then and now. So, Devani, I also want to talk about another thing, uh, which is, and this doesn't have anything to do with the internet, but there's sort of a way in which also Jane Austen is an intergenerational bonding experience. I know your mother introduced you to Pride and Prejudice. Um, there's sort of a way in which, I mean, I expect Lily Tyson, who's the producer of this episode and who's getting married in a couple of weeks, and you know, I, I do expect that uh, little uh, Theodora Weinberger Tyson is going to be, you know, handed a copy of Sense and Sensibility or something as soon as, as soon as she's ready. I mean, that's sort of a thing, right? That you share. There's something that you share with your, you know, the next generation down from you. Congratulations to uh, producer Lily. Uh, but abs- absolutely this idea that uh, there are ways that mothers and daughters in particular bond over these novels or that's a connector for these novels. I get students all the time, some saying it while rolling their eyes and some saying it sentimentally. My mom made me take this Jane Austen class. <laughs> you know, so you know, I think I think there's this sense that these books can connect across generations. We see this in the Jane Austen Society in North America too. Sometimes mothers and daughters come together to these. Um, men are less often in these spaces, and Deborah can talk more about that because her, her book deals directly with this. Right, I, that's exactly and, where I'm going, exactly where I'm going. And of course, it's actually my father who introduced me to Jane Austen, so I'm the outlier here among the mother-daughter crowd. Right, I feel guilty. I mean, my son and I watch Die Hard every Christmas, and we watch Independence Day every July 4th, and that's sort of what I've done for him culturally. Uh, but yeah, there is sort of a thing called an Austin bro, right? Um, uh, Deborah, maybe you can say a little bit uh, about sort of men and Jane Austen? Well, I'm sure Devaney knows, I'm sure, more about the history of this than I do, but I think originally, at least, actually, Jane Austen was, had, most of Jane Austen's fans were men in the um, late 19th, early 20th century. She was considered kind of a uh, kind of a tough, astringent writer, not the kind of soft, sentimental writer that, that girls would like. Um, and then I think my guess would be, but Devaney can speak to this more, my guess would be that the um, there were, of course, plenty of feminists who were interested in her in the, early, in the first half of the 20th century, but, but the real um, crystallization of the idea that Jane Austen was somehow a girly, a girly author, which I don't agree with, but that, that view sort of crystallized around the movies, I think, which, as I said before, tended to be very romance-focused um, and, and romance being typed as somehow a female interest. Again, something I don't necessarily agree with, but there we have it. Um, and so the attendance at the Jane Austen events that I've been to has tended to skew female um, and women don't necessarily mind that because, you know, spaces where women predominate tend to be spaces where women get listened to maybe more than they always do in a, in a more evenly distributed space. But um, so I think, you know, the Ted Scheinman, who's the author of a fun book called Camp Austin, which is another book about Dane Austin fandom, just recently wrote a piece for GQ where he talked about what it's like to be a man in these spaces that are predominantly female, these Austin spaces. Um so I, I guess there's still space for those guys, even though they're going to be outnumbered. Yeah. And I think, you know, Devaney, there's a way in which, well, the male characters in Jane Austen, it is sort of an, an invitation to figure out what kind of guy you are, you know, which, what kind of guy do you want to be? You know, uh, which kind of Jane Austen man um, is an appropriate kind of model for one's own thinking about oneself? I don't know how much thought or scholarship or or just personal narrative has emerged about that. But again, I'm guessing you do, Devaney. 
Oh, there's so much that one could go into here. And I do think there was a kind of elite male fandom in the late 19th into the early 20th century. But there was also a more popular and more women and girl oriented fandom. And it really circulated around the stage and the amateur stage. So I think there have always been these versions of sort of popular and probably more feminized Austin and the more... Um, elite respected, critically acclaimed, and, you know, therefore associated with institutions, and more often male identified versions of Austin. So these these two, and I wouldn't call them warring, but I think that they have not always seen eye to eye. Um, okay. Um, so we're, we're going to get ready, we're going to get a break a little bit earlier than we usually do, because we really want to talk about the adaptations. Um, and But before we do that, I, I'd love to ask each of you the most obvious question of all, which is, to name your favorite Jane Austen novel, uh, Deborah, Deborah, why don't we begin with you? Well, my typical answer to that question is whichever one I just finished reading, mm -hmm. um, in which case that would be Sense and Sensibility. But that is actually not my favorite Jane Austen novel. I usually say that if I was going to a desert island, I would take Persuasion, but that I would spend all of my time on the island regretting that I had not also been able to bring Pride and Prejudice and Emma. Well, presumably some ship captained by a captain and his wife would pull up and get pick you up and take you off to wherever you needed to go Hopefully. to get some more books. Uh, so, uh, Devaney, what about you? Pride and Prejudice. And I, th I know that that's the cliched, stereotypical answer, and I am not afraid to say it. You know, that is it. Well, there... I, once wrote a, I once wrote a blog post where I said that picking Pride and Prejudice as your favorite Jane Austen novel was like picking Paul McCartney as your favorite Beatle. Nobody could disagree with you, but there was something a little safe and conventional about that choice. So, <laughs> Well, there are reasons why stereotypes are stereotypes or cliches are cliches, because they have a real persistence to them, too. So There you go. Um, all right. So let's take a break here. We do have to talk about the way so many people these days are introduced to Jane Austen, which turns out not to be by one of those book things. All right. We are back. It's time to say some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor. Uh, she's our technical producer. She's the one who's firing off all these clips and things like that and keeping the show moving. Uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, I'm going to have to learn a whole new name for her, as it turns out, fairly soon. Uh, but she's also the producer of this episode, and, and I'm very happy about that. Uh, so well, we are going to start talking about adaptations uh, with our two guests right now. Uh, our guest would be Deborah Yaffe, uh, author of Among the Janeites, a journey through the world of Jane Austen fandom, and Devaney Lozer, professor of English at Arizona State University, author of books including The Making of Jane Austen. So let's begin with an adaptation that I think is accorded quite a bit of reverence. We were just talking about Pride and Prejudice. We were just talking about Colin Firth and wet shirts. So let's just get this one out of the way. This is B1, Cat. Mr. Doss? Miss Bennett. I, uh, I did not expect to see you, sir. We understood all the family from home, or we should never presume... I returned a day early. Excuse me, your parents are in good health. Uh, yes, they are very well. Uh, thank you, sir. I'm glad to hear it. How long have you been in this part of the country? About two days, sir. And where are you staying? At the Inn at Lambton. Oh, yes, of course. 
Mm. Well, I'm, I'm just arrived myself. And your parents are in good health? And all your sisters? <laughs> yes. They're all in excellent health. Excuse me. The man himself, I presume. Just as handsome as in his portrait, though perhaps a little less formally attired. You must leave here at once. Of course, if you wish. Oh, I wish we'd never come. That, of course, is Colin Firth uh, as Mr. Darcy. I've never known how to say this uh, actor's name. Jennifer L. Ailey? I don't know. Uh, she saved the world in Contagion. I should know how to say her name uh, as Elizabeth Bennett. So, um, and, and I think uh, here we are also introduced uh, to a particular kind of mid-90s version of maleness that is the somewhat stammering, bad, at, bad, at, bad and awkward at small talk Hugh Grant, Colin Firth person that, that, that you know was very much in vogue at that time. But I want to ask both of you, I'll start with you, Deborah. If, if let's say this is a good adaptation uh, that gets some reverence, what makes a good adaptation? Why, why is one thing good and, and maybe another one not so much? Well, obviously, this is a question that will be answered differently by different people. Um, for me, an adaptation is good if it captures the spirit of the original work in some way. And that adaptation to me is one of the very best because it's very true to the kind of blend of romance and humor and family drama that characterizes Pride and Prejudice. It's a really funny adaptation. It's beautifully acted. It has some moments of genuine pathos and feeling in it. And um, it's just beautifully written and, and beautifully produced in every way. And it, part of the reason that it made such an impact, I think, is because it was also one of the very first Jane Austen adaptations for television that deployed some of the um, some of the kind of infrastructure of film in the sense that it had beautiful production values, it had beautiful outdoor shooting, it had great costumes. It was not, it did not seem like it was a filmed play as many of the older TV adaptations did. And so it kind of brought people into a much more um, real feeling kind of atmosphere than some of the old older adaptations had. Yeah, great answer. Uh, Devaney, I don't know whether you want to uh, expand on that or add to it. No, oh, I think I think Deborah captured it beautifully, and I also think the age at which you see an adaptation has <laughs> yeah. something to do with, with with which one turns out to be your favorite. Oh, we are we are all baby ducks. We imprint. Uh, I mean, on everything, uh, and so this would be no exception. So from the same period, and this is going to be C two cat. Uh, from the same period, uh, we have the Sense and Sensibility a- adaptation. This is Emma Thompson uh, as Eleanor Dashwood, the aforementioned Hugh Grant uh, as Edward. Here we go. Eleanor. Eleanor, I met Lucy when I was very young. Had I had an active profession, I should never have felt such an idle, foolish inclination. My behavior at Norland was very wrong. But I convinced myself that you felt any friendship for me. And that it was my heart alone that I was risking. I've come here with no expectations only to profess now that I am at liberty to do so that my heart is and always will be yours. So, Devaney, let's talk about this too because 
in this particular clip, uh, you hear a man doing almost all the talking. But there is a way in which to make things bankable in order to you know, get some fairly you know, big-name stars attached to them. I'm assuming that Hollywood or, or whoever is doing the adapting or the BBC or whoever thinks, well, you know, there's got to be some pretty strong male roles here. So did they put their thumb on the scale to get that? I think so. And I wrote a piece for The Atlantic years ago about Sense and Sensibility and the ways that it turned the male characters into new sensitive men, which your comment was getting at to earlier, Colin. So I, I think these adaptations fleshed out the male characters in, in ways that appealed to contemporary audiences. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that makes total sense. Yeah, Deborah, what did you want to say about that? Yeah, the other thing I wanted to say about that adaptation, so I should start by saying that is my single favorite Jane Austen adaptation. I just love that movie on every level. But I think the ways in which adaptations differ from the novels is very apparent in that movie. Um, because Jane Austen has this narrative voice that always undercuts or makes ironic um, some of the apparently romantic things that are going on in the stories. And you can't ever quite get that ironic voice in the movies because there's just, it's very difficult to convey that. So for instance, in that scene that you played, Edward says, I've come here with no expectations. Um, he doesn't actually say that in the novel. In the novel, there's a line that in the voice of the narrator that says, um, even though Edward talked about how uncertain he was, he did not, when he arrived to propose to Eleanor, he did not, upon the whole, expect a very cruel reception. But it was his business to say that he did, and he <laughs> said it very prettily. So she kind of undercuts the romance of the proposal moment by saying, look, he knew that she was going to get accepted. Um and you can't really, it doesn't really come across in the movie, which doesn't bother me at all as a viewer of the movie. And it doesn't even really bother me as someone who likes the novel. I'm happy to see them as different things, but they are different. So we've been dwelling in 1995. Uh, we might as well just stay in 1995 for, for one more clip. Cat, this is going to be C4. Um, uh, this is, of course, is the other Jane Austen movie uh, or adaptation from 1995, Clueless. <laughs> I don't know why John's going out with a high school boy. They're like dogs. You have to clean them and feed them. And they're just like these nervous creatures that jump and slobber all over you. Ew! Get off of me! Ugh! As if! So, um... Deborah, first of all, we, we need to talk in a more global way about the relationship of Jane Austen fans to Jane Austen adaptations, because there is certainly a theory that one of the struggles with adaptations is dealing with the reactions of people who really care passionately about Jane Austen, and that seems to be the case with a lot of them. Although I feel like Clueless kind of gets a pass somehow, There's a sort of, because I guess it's not really a Jane Austen adaptation, but I, I sense that it's kind of beloved by people who might have a hard time with other kind of fast and loose adaptations. Well, yeah, I mean, the Jane Austen that I know all love Clueless, and Clueless is another of my very favorite Jane Austen adaptations. I think actually, see, I think it actually is pretty pretty true to the spirit of Jane Austen, the way that I was saying I like my adaptations to be, because it is very funny. Um, it is pretty faithful to the plot, and it develops a language, a kind of special language that is very important to the effect of the movie. And Jane Austen's books are all about this kind of special language that she has developed. So I think in that sense, Clueless is a really great Jane Austen adaptation. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Devaney, did you want to react to, to, I'm sure you have strong thoughts about Clueless as well. 
Oh, I love Clueless. I think Deborah hit the nail on the head there. But the fact that it's not set in the early 19th century means that people who <laughs> go to the film to have some kind of replication experience of the novel aren't worried about that. They know it's not going to happen. Right. So maybe we could talk a little bit about casting here, too, because the other thing that has to happen, I mean, I was making a little joke earlier about 1995 and Colin Firth and Hugh Grant, and there's a certain kind of guy, you know, who's different from a guy that I don't know that Henry Fonda would have played. Uh, you know, he's even in the Lady mm-hmm. Eve where he's kind of absent-minded and fumbling. These aren't Cary Grant, uh, uh, Henry Fonda kind of roles uh, that you might have seen in 1940s rom-coms. It's sort of a different kind of person. But there's also, I think, Deborah. These have to be not just the men, but the women. They have to be. I don't know a kind of person who's just really popular and appealing, right? Because this whole thing works because you wind up loving the characters you're supposed to love and disliking the characters you're supposed to dislike. Well, sure, but that's true in the novels too. I mean, we don't see them. We picture them in our heads, but I think most readers do come to care very deeply what happens to Elizabeth Bennet and to hate Mr. Collins to stay with the same <laughs> novel um, or to um, find Mrs. Bennet completely irritating. Um, and so we, I think, have those responses as readers. And then the trick, I assume, when you're casting a movie is to find an actor who can embody that for the audience. I just have to, I'm having a flashback to 1995 when my son was six years old and he was watching at home uh, that ad- ad- adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, the Colin Firth uh, Pride and Prejudice one. And uh, when I walked in, he looked at me. He was always giving me a hard time, even when he was six years old. He said, Dad, you're kind of a Mr. Collins. Uh, <laughs> I thought, Ouch. Well, you know, when my, when my son read Pride and Prejudice as a teenager, he found Mrs. Bennett absolutely hilarious. He just could not stop laughing at her. And I became a little concerned that that might mean something about his own mother that I should be worried about. But uh, I didn't follow that up too closely. All right. So we're going to run out of time here. But Maybe we need to jump forward to, well, in my case, to yesterday. So yesterday, knowing that I was going to have these two formidable Jane Austen experts to talk to, uh, I was doing everything I could to get ready. Uh, but one of the things that I did was I decided to watch this very controversial adaptation of Persuasion. It's on Netflix. It stars Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliott. Uh, let's hear a little bit. This is C1, Cat. Sorry. C1. Let's hear a little bit of how that sounds. Now I'm single and thriving. Spend my time drinking fine wines, enjoying warm baths, and lying face down on my bed. Like I said, thriving. Who needs romance when one has family? So I said this at the beginning of the show. I'm watching this thing yesterday, and I I know that I'm supposed to have a certain amount of languid contempt for this thing based on what I'm reading on social media and even it's like numbers on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff. And I'm just really laughing a lot and kind of enjoying Dakota Johnson's mugging and her kind of, you know, flea bag, fourth wall stuff that she's she's doing. And uh, eventually the other person in the room said in a not entirely pleasant way, well, you're not a Jane Austen person. Um, but I'm wondering what you two Jane Austen people think about this. And Devaney, maybe you can get us started. I mean, I know there's problems. I know Dakota Johnson is kind of, well, I mean, to put it bluntly, way too hot and wears too much makeup to really be Anne. But I mean, was this did this movie bother you a lot? 
No, it. I didn't expect I would love it based on the amount of hate it got. But I actually watched it a second time last night and parts of it had grown on me since the first time I watched it last week. I think there are things here that are really thoughtful and that are interesting turns on what goes on in the novel. And of course, the minor characters steal the show. Yeah. But I think also, you know, Deborah was talking earlier about, you know, how do you convey certain ironies? How do you can how do you take something that's kind of explained to you on the page uh, and, and make it work on the screen? And, and Devin, I thought Dakota Johnson did a kind of a good job with that. Things, you know, just sort of the way which she might kind of just roll through a statement or roll her eyes while making a statement. She did a lot, I, I thought, to sort of get me to sort of understand some of the the kind of ironic qualities of otherwise emotional pain. She's an amazing actress, so you're not going to get hate from me. Uh, you're not going to get that here. I think she did a fine job with a very changed version of this heroine. And if you're not willing to go along with the fact that this is not a, a nobody and a kind of melancholic uh, to the side of the action character, then you're not going to like her performance. But if you are willing to let go of that version of Anne Elliot, then I think you might. But Deborah, uh, I'm 50% relieved uh, that at least one person doesn't mind that I liked it. How about you? Well, I mean, I certainly don't mind that you liked it. I mean, anybody should enjoy anything they want to. I'm not crazy about this movie, which I've only seen once, but um, just because I'm, I guess I'm not willing to let go of all those things that Devaney just described, because to me, that's what persuasion is. And there's nothing wrong with making a rom-com about a klutzy heroine who drinks too much, but then why make persuasion? You know, just go make that other story that isn't persuasion. Yeah, I think um, they did. It was called Bridget Jones Diaries, but continue. Well, yeah, I mean, and a million other rom-coms, which is fine, and I like them too. But um, if, you know, you're going to brand it as Jane Austen's Persuasion, I would like it to have the spirit of Jane Austen's Persuasion. To me, this movie pretty much didn't, with the exception of, as Stephanie said, some of the secondary characters were well done. Um, it had its moments, but overall, I was not thrilled with it. Yeah, I actually find myself wishing for more Richard E. Grant. He he has like no dialogue yes. really after the first yeah. 15 minutes. Uh, he's kind of out of the picture except for a little cameo near the end. Well, I dare not ask you folks a, another question because we're essentially out of time. Uh, but it's been so great to talk to you. Thanks again uh, to both of you for being here. Devin Lozer, uh, Deborah Yaffe. Uh, you can read about them on our webpage. Thanks uh, also especially to Lily Tyson for conceiving uh, of this episode and executing it so expertly. And thanks to Kat uh, for making the whole thing happen. And thanks to you for listening and paying attention. And sure, I mean, we'll have stuff up on social media and you can, uh, people are already, at least on my Facebook page, having quite a lively conversation about that adaptation of persuasion. All right. Well, uh, that's all. That's all we have time for. But we will talk to you tomorrow. 